Welcome to Beyond the Balance Sheet, the podcast that helps advisors, clinical professionals, and affluent families understand the complexities of issues related to our mental, physical, and emotional well-being. Our co-hosts, Arden O'Connor and Diana Clark, will interview a series of guests on a range of topics, providing informative content and practical tools for professionals and families to consider. Here are your hosts, Arden and Diana. Hi, and welcome to another episode of Beyond the Balance Sheet with Arden O'Connor and Diana Clark. And we have a very distinguished guest today. We have Eric Brotman, who is the CEO of BFG Financial Advisors and also has his own podcast known as Don't Retire graduate. So he has been a really instrumental person in us developing this podcast, and we are really happy to have him on the air. Welcome, Eric. Thank you, Diana. Good to be here. Excellent. So we have a few questions for you today. We're going to talk to you more as a financial planner at this moment than your podcast host, but we will let you put in a plug for that in a little bit. How's that? Works for me. Good, good. So you have an opportunity pretty frequently to work with people of means in your role as a financial advisor, as a financial planner. Can you share an experience of supporting a client through a crisis, whether that be a mental health crisis or a biological health crisis, any kind of crisis? What has been your experience in that? Diane, it's a great question. And, you know, certainly we work with some folks of means and, and some are more modest than others, quite frankly. We, we really do want to reach lots of different types of families. But um, one thing that folks have in common is that it's very difficult to make good, objective, thoughtful decisions under duress. Um, and so, you know, I've, I've been at this now 26 years, and we've certainly seen our share of um, both exciting opportunistic type things and also tragedies. So um, ultimately, the, the, the experiences that I've had, the ones that, um, that I think resonate the most are when there's the loss of a spouse. Um, uh, you know, certainly th- there have been other examples, but um, we've walked uh, dozens of um, widows and widowers through the loss of a spouse and then, of course, the loss of, uh, of a second parent. And so when we try and work with families, we try to make sure that it's a multi-generational approach because it's real important to know who to call when something goes wrong. And we want to be on that short list so that we can help with the really difficult things when, when the time arises. That's a great answer. Thank you. Do you. Have you had any encounter with behavioral health issues, alcoholism, substance use disorders, or mental illness, where you really felt like you had to be the support for a client? Yes, absolutely. Um, one in particular comes to mind where we had a, a couple that ultimately, after many, many years of, of trying, um, wound up divorcing. And I think it was largely due to uh, a substance abuse issue. And it was it was a daunting, challenging situation. Even when um, everyone was reasonably getting along, it was still um, the elephant in the room, and there was no avoiding it. Mm-hmm. Were you successful in having this go in a non chaotic direction? 
from a financial standpoint, I think so. But from a from an emotional standpoint, I, I'm not a therapist. I'm not trained for that. Um, you know, we certainly walk through the ramifications of uh, how a divorce might might impact and ultimately even protect some assets that were, you know, being uh, essentially squandered for things that were dangerous and um, disruptive. Um, and so we wound up involved in some very intimate conversations, um, but we certainly didn't replace the folks who were providing the therapy and the, and the emotional support. Um, we were there to make sure that, uh, that particularly the, the financial questions were being answered in a way that was very empathetic so that it wasn't um, purely quantitative. It was, it was pretty thoughtful. Mm-hmm. Our last guest just explained that he had a long-term relationship with a financial advisor and that she was an incredibly supportive resource to him when he was in a difficult space and struggling with his own mental illness. Have you had, in your experience, been that person for a family? Yeah, I think on, on, a, on many occasions, um, there have been uh, opportunities, and again, usually it's during a tragic situation or a, or a difficult time where um, I think we are on the very short list of people on the, sort of the, the inside baseball, if you will, the, the folks who, um, who the family would come to and say, I'm, I'm worried about my, my father's faculties, or I'm worried about my mom's health, or, um, or I have a sibling who is uh, really creating a problem for our family and I, I don't know what to do, or... Um, or gosh, my, my seven siblings and I just inherited a bunch of property and can't agree on what to do. Um, mm-hmm. or, we wanna, or, or we have a family business issue or a family farm issue. Or I mean, anytime you put that many folks together, um, you're going to have the possibility for, for conflict. And certainly not, not everyone's singing from the same hymnal all the time, right? So it's important right. to try and find some common ground. Right. So I'm going to ask a difficult question. In thinking of one case that didn't go as well, given those kinds of dynamics, what would you have done to change your approach in hindsight? It's a, that's a very good question and a difficult question. I, I think in, in general, and, I, and I, I don't know that I can pick on one specific example, but in general, um, anytime we're second-guessing ourselves, and, and me specifically, if I'm second-guessing myself, it usually has to do with risk management and with insurance decisions. Um, and a lot of times it's recognizing at a given point that um, a, a client or a family may not need some of the insurance that they still have and coming to a decision together to get rid of it and then realizing three years later, boy, that would have come in handy. You, you know, so there's this second guessing that even though you made a, an objective, studied, thoughtful decision, it still provides this opportunity for rear view mirror uh, reflection and that, that 2020 vision that always comes after the fact. So. I think the insurance decisions are much more difficult than the investment or other planning decisions because they are to pass risk you can't bear. And if you can bear it, you don't need to pass it. And that's a, that's a nine-headed hydra waiting to happen. It sure is. I hadn't thought of the insurance complexities. I had thought of um, family members in discord around the table, so to speak, and not being able to agree and have assets squandered. That was the, the, my vision. Yeah. Well, and there, well, and there, that certainly does happen. Although I find if you can get everyone around a table, usually you can come up with some reasonable consensus or some reasonable basis to move forward. It's when someone won't come to the table. 
that there's a problem. And so that we, we lose the ability to look back and wish we had handled it another way if we never got the opportunity to try and handle it in the first place. So where, where I have my biggest regrets or where I feel like maybe the, the, the failure has happened, and I put that in quotes, um, where I feel that's happened is when we've been unable to get everyone to the table together. You know, we, we sometimes see the, the light at the end of the tunnels of train, and we can't get other people to believe us. We're like Noah. <laughs> so, um, y- y- you know, when that happens, when you're in a situation where you say, you know, you and your siblings own this, this beach property, but the way it's titled, it's eventually going to be owned by 15 great nieces and nephews, and there's going to be chaos. Um, let's try to deal with it now. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I started my career working in the legal department for a, a big brokerage firm, and I was working with people under duress at 22, where someone had died or something had gone wrong, and I couldn't do anything to, to prevent or protect them or even to help them with decision making. All I could do was say, here are the T's that need to be crossed and the I's that need to be dotted. This is what you have to do now. I'm sorry you can't change that. And they're mm-hmm. saying, but but only my older sibling is named on this IRA. Why am I not named? And, and of course, I I had no answer for that. I just knew here's the way it is and we can't deviate from that. It's legal now. And once someone's dead, it's very hard for them to change their minds about something. So um, I I learned that very early in my career that it was better to be on the planning side, at least for me, than on the operational side on the back end when you really, you, you could make the process more efficient, but you couldn't make the outcome any better. So we wanted to get ahead of that and help people think about some of the what ifs, not because we were doomsayers, but because stuff happens. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Have you ever been part, and I know I'm asking difficult questions here, but I really am curious. Have you ever been part of advising a client who was so erratic with one of the beneficiaries that the beneficiary didn't know which way to turn? You know, first they were in the will, first they're given money, next they're not given money, or sort of chaotic decision making. Have you ever been exposed to a situation like that? I have. And usually it's more the erratic behavior of the potential beneficiary that dictates that than the erratic behavior of the owner of the property. So oftentimes we'll see, you know, a a couple with grown kids and maybe even grown grandkids um, who are trying to figure out the, the, the delicate balance between an, equi- an equitable distribution and an equal one, because that's not always the same thing, and trying to determine, hey, how do we, how do we treat this one of our three kids in our legal documents when he or she is not only behaving this way, but we're almost estranged? What do we, you know, how do we deal with that? Usually it's because of something the beneficiary or would-be beneficiary has done, there are very few examples that I've run into where it's been the other way around. Um, we've certainly seen erratic behavior, but not generally where it relates to you know constantly changing wills or trying to control things, mostly because uh, we find for whatever reason, most of the folks we represent are, are really family stewards. They're trying desperately to do the right thing, and sometimes it's difficult to do. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. Arden, I have been hogging the conversation. Did you have some questions? Sure, I'd love to jump in. And thanks, Eric, for joining us today. I guess one question I have, and this 
this is representative in our clients with mental health or substance use issues, but it can also just be, you know, poor personal planning is, you know, the issue of overspending, which comes up a fair amount. I want to ask what your approach is to that, Eric, and how much it comes up in the work with clients. Like, like anything else, there's a spectrum here. You know, we have some clients who uh, almost to a fault refuse to spend money and never live their lives. You know, they, they amassed this incredible wealth and they never took the trip and they never did the things that we were encouraging them to do because they had plenty of resources to do it and they always felt like they were going to be broke and they were worth millions of dollars and that just, it was an irrational thing on one end. Um, certainly there's the other end where people really just for one reason or another can't, either can't help themselves or don't help themselves to stop spending and, and they overspend. And, you know, the, when you are in your 30s or 40s or even 50s, sometimes you can get away with that. But mm-hmm. once you've gotten to the point where you're living on whatever your portfolio can generate, we try to paint a picture for folks that um, your, your money tree here, you've got an orchard, right? And you want to make sure that it bears fruit every year and you can pick fruit every year. And if you overspend, what you're doing is chopping branches off the trees. It doesn't mean you can't have it. It's yours. They're your trees. But for every branch you chop off, it's fruit you will not grow next year. And it means that the abundance mentality that's so healthy becomes uh, just the opposite. And there have been very few occasions where we've actually had to address in writing the fact that a client was so grossly overspending that they were going to run out of money. It was only a matter of when. Um, Fortunately, that's rare. But a lot of times we do have to help coach decisions around, you know, do we really need slash want X, Y, and Z? And what are the ramifications? What is the, what is the downside of making a big financial commitment at, say, 78 years old? And sometimes there isn't one. Sometimes it's perfectly fine. But in other cases, it can be really detrimental. Well, that was one of my questions is, you know, in those situations where you see someone, let's say they're not totally down a path where they're gonna run out of money, but they're headed down one where they could overspend within their lifetime and potentially have to make major lifestyle adjustments you know, in their latter years, which to me sounds like the most problematic time to do so. Have you found, you know, I'm thinking about the term intervention, which in our field is used when somebody is not willing to get help. You know, you, the family brings together resources and they confront the person with the substance use issue, sometimes even with a mental illness, and they encourage them to get help. Is there, I'm trying to think in the financial field, is there a version of that? Or have you found a specific approach helps in those situations when someone is really headed down a path that could put them in danger? They're not quite there yet. Um, and have you found it's just simply showing numbers? Is it an emotional plea if you found certain approaches to be more effective than others? Arden, it's a great question. And showing the numbers doesn't work because mm-hmm. uh, this is an emotional thing. It's a, this is right brain stuff, right? The, 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 you can show spreadsheets all day long, but with the mm-hmm. exception of a small group of the population who are going to say, oh, yeah, I see on line 57, that means I shouldn't X, Y, or Z. Most people are not <laughs> thinking that way. So, um, I, I have the mindset that tough love is still love. Mm-hmm. And so if I have to show, it's not intervention, but if I have to show tough love to a client, um, sometimes what I'll do is, is take steps and, and explain that I'm doing things to try and take steps to help protect them from themselves. Mm-hmm. And that might mean securing some assets or some level of their, of their wealth um, in a place where it will be more difficult for them to, to access. 
It might mean limiting some liquidity. It might mean using some type of trust. It might mean, um, it might mean turning some, um, some asset into an income stream that they can't outlive, but that they can't overdraw. Um, and of course, I can only do that with their permission. We're not doing it to them or against their will. But sometimes the coaching there becomes very valuable to say, listen, this is the track you're on. I want to try and protect you. Um, let's take this portion of your pie and put it someplace where that risk is, is eliminated or dramatically reduced. And that way, on this other piece, if in fact this is the road you continue down, at least you won't be destitute. Uh, right. Usually that works pretty well. I mean, people are willing to split the baby. <laughs> no, I, lo I love that analogy. I mean, it, it requires a certain intimacy with clients, which it sounds like you build, which is essential for having tough conversations like this. I actually know an attorney in the Boston area who had a client who had a mental illness in moments when he wasn't thinking as clearly and he was off his medication. He agreed to let her take over as power of attorney. And this was all in writing. So to your point, she wasn't doing this to him. It was something he consented to. Um, but it allowed, you know, it, it actually prevented him from getting into major legal difficulties and some even financial difficulties in those moments when he was making choices that weren't necessarily supportive of his own well-being. So it, to me, this is almost the financial equivalent. Um, because I, I think for some people, and we see it in our practice all the time, if they have no you know, if they didn't necessarily establish hobbies later in life and they're in an older age bracket, it can be very easy whether you're trying to play the stock market or whether you just like nice things and like travel to to sort of presume that you can live the way you have your whole life without necessarily recognizing your dependence on a smaller pool of resources that's not going to regenerate itself. You're absolutely right. And there are lots of strategies to do that. The problem is all of those strategies are um, rational. And so they don't take either behavior or the emotional side into consideration most of the time. You know, you, you can read up on the various strategies of asset segregation or of, um, or, or of uh, blocking certain assets out or, or all these various types of things. But ultimately, you can only protect people from themselves to the extent they will let you. And that does require an intimacy and it does require, I mean, I don't think anyone has ever selected me as their advisor or as their partner or as their board member because I'm going to sit on the periphery and nod and smile and agree with what they say. They, they generally, I think, appreciate the fact that I will push back when that's necessary, um, not to be confrontational, but to be thoughtful. And, and I think that winds up being a very helpful skill and not everyone has that. And quite frankly, I didn't have it 25 years ago. You know, you, you don't you, you don't enter into this business and suddenly have the ability to, to necessarily do that. I don't think we're born with it. I think you develop that that over time. And that's why sometimes it's nice to have a team of people and not just an individual working with you. That makes no, I think complete it's a great sense. Yeah, absolutely. And I think one of the major reasons some advisors don't develop that skill set or, or don't think to have these kinds of conversations is because they're nervous about getting dismissed by the client. They're worried about getting fired. And I guess one of my questions is, you know, do you think it took you longer to develop it because you needed confidence in your own capacity to build a practice? Or was there some other learning you had along your way that gave you the confidence to say, geez, I'm going to have this conversation. I'm assuming every time you do, you have something in your mind that says this could go one way or the other. Um, but at least I've spoken up and at least I've said my piece. Um, but I, so I'm curious, you know, what, what kind of got you to that place that you were comfortable doing that and risking maybe irritating a client or potentially even losing a client? 
I don't think for me it was a question of capacity or critical mass. I, I think it was a, a question of experience. So having lived through Y2K and the, and the meltdown that, that, that came on the aftermath of that, and then, of course, the Great Recession in 0809, and having watched what happened to the people who didn't do the right thing, it became much easier for me. Um, easy is the wrong word, but it became much more natural for me to be able to provide a cautionary tale and to be able to say, I'm not going to sit here passively and watch you do this to yourself. Um, you, you need to allow us to be good stewards for you or, or maybe we're not the right place. And actually to invite uh, a client to, mm -hmm. to find a different advisor if that's the right thing to do. It so seldom happens that way. Um, but, but if it does, it's generally for the right reason. If, if you're ideologically opposed to one another, um, you don't have a, a real good basis to move forward anyway. So sometimes it's, it's better to let a client go for the right reasons than to keep one for the wrong reasons. Such a good point. Um, and I'm going to pick up on that thread, even though it's slightly, you know, it's not necessarily in the behavioral health realm, but it is about, you know, I, I guess my question to you is, are there clients that you have either had to encourage to leave your practice or have had completely unrealistic expectations. And I'm curious how you've dealt with that as a professional advisor. Yes and yes. Um, and <laughs> let me break that down. Um, th there are some situations where um, a client we work with is just not uh, ideologically not right for us and we're not right for them. It means either they're looking for us to do something that is beyond our either our skill set or our comfort level. I mean, we're not going to we're not going to work with someone who wants us, for example, um, to to cast off our, our ethical standards. Right? We're not going to do something that we know to be to be wrong just because it makes a client happy. So that we're just simply not doing. There have been other situations where we've had a client treat one of our staff members in a way that was totally unacceptable and had to have a conversation about what's okay and what's not okay and ultimately to part ways because mm -hmm. you're not gonna, treating our team that way is like treating our, our family that way, you're not doing that. Um, and so it doesn't matter how much money you have, at some point, at any point, there has to be respect and there has to be appreciation and there has to be um, communication. Now, in some cases, it's just an unnatural or, or unreasonable expectation about something like investment returns or risk levels or, hey, why didn't you know the market was going to do that last Wednesday? Um, and so that is more of a, a coaching thing where you, you have to build portfolios in such a way that you can avoid those conversations. And you also have to be incredibly transparent. If we have someone approach us and say, what I'm really looking for is a market timer who's going to pick just the right stocks at just the right <laughs> time, we are not going to engage that person because, number one, we're not trying to do that. Um, the saying in our office is we don't represent cowboys. Uh, and essentially <laughs> what, the, what we mean by that is, look, if you want to be speculative and you want to really go for it, I'm not here to tell you you can or can't. It's your money. It's your call. But we're not going to be complicit with it. And even to the point where if we have a client, let's say we've got a client who's got $3 million and they want to play with some of it, that's fine. We'll tell them to keep some of it on their own and we'll handle what we'll call their sure. serious money and they can handle their play money and I don't have any problem with that. If that's fun for them, if they like picking tech stocks or healthcare stocks or, or whatever it is, if they want to day trade, let's only have them do that on the money that's not part of their serious plan and let's have us not be complicit with that and basically say, look, you, you are free to do anything you want at your money, but let us protect this piece over here and that's usually been okay as well. 
I love that. And, and I guess on that same vein, you know, we're in the middle of a pandemic. I'm imagining whether it was in March or whether it's now or whether it's in two months, you are occasionally getting a frantic call from a client who's saying just what you said earlier, you know, what what happened on Wednesday? What are the markets doing? I want to move everything out of this and put it over here. I want to take all my money and hide it under my mattress. I can only imagine the versions of of what you're hearing. You know, I guess my question is, am I correct? Is that sort of some of the dialogue you hear? And then how do you manage that as somebody who's trying to kind of get people to think about investments over the long term? In 2008, we had exactly two clients who said, I I can't handle the volatility, I wanna make a change. Um, And both of them wound up making a change and ultimately leaving our firm and neither, at least financially, will ever recover from making a a really poor decision. And and we knew it and we did our best to to coach them, but ultimately it's always their call. This year we've only had one who went partially to cash. And it wasn't irrational. It was a rational, thought-out decision that they had reached a certain point where they said, we're comfortable even if we forego some growth for a while. We realize this might not be the right thing to do, but we're comfortable that it's not a devastating thing to do in our present situation. And we analyzed it together and we worked together on it and we ultimately agreed that it was okay, but that we wouldn't be the ones to tell them when it was safe to dip their toes back in the water because we won't know. It may have been three days ago. It might be three days from now. It might be next year. Mm-hmm. So... Um, you know, when, when folks are asking us, hey, do you think we should get in or out? The, the short answer is no. I think you should, own, um, you should own a portfolio that allows you not to have to deal with that torture. And if that means having five years of cash somewhere so that the rest of the market can do what it's doing and if it drops, you're, you're, you either have a buying opportunity or you can sit tight because you have enough cash to live on during that period of time, then you can largely ignore the news. Um, and, and that's okay. There are ways to do that that won't hurt you generally. Um, it might cap your upside a little bit, but so what? Mm-hmm. If you're sleeping at night, there's, there's a life to live too, right? So you don't have to squeeze out every possible basis point of profit. What you have to do is you have to find a portfolio you can live with that's built to weather basically any storm so that you don't have to torture yourself of is this a good day or a bad day to invest. So interesting. So I have one last question for you, and that is, if you have a client who has a loved one who's clearly struggling with a mental health issue or a behavioral health issue, how do you sort of position yourself to be that trusted resource for them? What is something you would like people to consider in that role? Well, first and foremost, we have to be that trusted person long before that analysis occurs long before there's a revelation um, if if there's a path that's that's happening and for us it hasn't been mental illness per se it's more been cognitive impairment which is I guess a very similar creature but but at some point there's a, a potential to have diminished capacity and we've seen that in some of our more senior clients sometimes with one spouse sometimes with both um, and we try to take steps many years in advance if we're able to prepare us for that and to get written permission to speak to a trusted advisor or a trusted member of their family or other people if we identify these things because I'm, I'm not a doctor. I'm not, gonna, um, I, I'm not in a position to say, you know, these are clear signs of dementia. But on the other hand, I do need, uh, from an ethical standpoint and a professional standpoint, I do need to, to see 
if there's a sudden change in behavior or a sudden change in risk tolerance or a sudden uh, a sudden shift in spending habits or something that could be a red flag we need to be intimately attached enough to our clients to recognize the possibility that something's going on not that we're going to be right and not that we're diagnosing anything heaven forbid but that we have already prepared. We want to make sure that the legal documents are done before anyone's impaired. We want to make sure that, um, that we know who those responsible parties are and that they know who we are and how to reach us. We want to know that we have information sharing, sort of like a HIPAA authorization in a hospital or in a medical practice. We have information sharing letters that allows us to speak to maybe one of the grown children that they've identified to say, we're a little worried about mom and dad. They're, they're starting to, to maybe make some decisions that don't make sense. Have you noticed anything? Is everything all right? So I think the key, and, and to give a very long answer to a very short question, the key is you can't wake up one day and suddenly be the trusted advisor. It takes years to build that kind of relationship. I don't think people find that um, necessarily day one. I think it takes time to build that trust level, to build that um, communication level, and to become the go-to for when something's going on because these are these are major life events. Um, and you know, financial uh, financial work is almost as intimate as medicine. I mean, in fact, we even tell people that our our analysis is going to be like a physical exam for you financially. And we promise there'll be, you know, no, no hospital gowns involved, but, but we are going to really look at everything. And it, it is a physical exam. It's like an executive physical financially. That's a great answer. Thank you, Eric. Well, I would love to thank you again for joining us today. And again, to reiterate that you have your own podcast. Would you like to tell us a little bit about that? Oh, I'd love to. Thank you. Yeah, the, the show is called Don't Retire, Graduate. Um, and I actually I published a book in October of 2020 by the same title, Don't Retire, Graduate. And the premise is that retirement in its traditional form is actually quite awful for you, and we should all avoid doing it. And by that, I mean, retirement shouldn't be a retreat or a disappearing act. It should be a graduation to the next stage of life. Um, and that, that does not mean don't be financially free and financially independent. It does mean don't go from working 50 or 60 hours a week to golf and shuffleboard and reruns on TV because if you don't have a reason to get out of bed every morning, you stop getting out of bed every morning. So I, I think it's real important to stay engaged, whether it's for money or for fun or for charity or for family. Um, keep purpose in your life and you'll live a much more rewarding life. So that's, that's what it's about. I love that. Thank you, Eric. Oh, thank you. This has been fun. Thanks so much for coming on today, Eric. Have a great day. You do the same. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Beyond the Balance Sheet, a podcast designed to help advisors, clinical professionals, and affluent families solve some of their biggest medical, psychiatric, and emotional challenges. Visit beyondthebalancesheet.com to read more about our guests and resources and sign up for our newsletter.